0: Welcome. Uh, We're happy that you're here. Uh, A little bit of business to get started. We talked a little bit last week about what's coming up next week. Do you know what's next week? Do you remember? Easter Sunday. Um, Yeah, Easter Sunday. One of those Sundays, one of two or three on the calendar when the majority of our culture wakes up and wonders, there's something else I should be doing this morning. Uh, Brunch just doesn't seem complete. There's something else I feel like I should be doing. And that thing they're wrestling with is their understanding of what it means to, to go to church so they could check a good deed off their list, so they could gather another period of time between the next holiday to feel like they're right with whatever God or deity they might believe in that's up there in the sky keeping a measure of their good and bad deeds. Um, and what we talked about last week was this is an opportunity for us to redeem that conscience and to redeem that struggle by taking a couple of weeks to pray. Pray for your friends, pray for your family, pray for those you know do not have a, a hope-filled, grace-filled relationship with Jesus. Take time to pray for them. Pray that God would use that struggle in their heart and in their mind that creeps up when Easter comes around. That God would use that and then use you as you invite them and bring them, that they might hear the good news of the gospel preached next Sunday on Easter Sunday and they might see the, the effect, see the transformation of believing in that good news as we celebrate baptisms and we baptize a slew of people who have given their hearts to Jesus and who Jesus is transforming day in and day out like the rest of us into the image of his son. It's an unbelievably powerful moment to hear the story of someone whose heart, whose taste buds have been changed by Jesus, and they are giving themselves over to him and professing that faith publicly in baptism. So pray for your friends. Pray for your family. Ask God to give you the courage and the boldness to bring them with you next week, that they would hear the good news of the gospel, see it lived out in baptism, and that God would do something in that moment in their heart. And at that moment, if if God were so to touch them, to change them, we'll baptize them too. We'll, we'll, we'll have shirts and towels on hand. We'll just baptize whoever needs to get baptized next week. So pray, expect great things from God in their life and in yours, and then speak with them and bring them. So we will do all that we can logistically to make it happen. For you guys back here on my right, man, y'all, we got to give these guys an award or something for enduring the, the, the screen up here. Y'all can't see anything with that basketball goal, can you? I'm sorry, we, we've got people smarter than me on the basketball goals who are going to get the basketball goals up next week so that you can see. And we'll figure out how to, to to get the chairs in here that we need for people. So pray, believe, bring. Let's trust God to do something amazing next week in, in our hearts and in the lives of those that we love. Um, and then we'll, we'll keep going. Sound good? All right. Last week of Lent, we're going into Holy Week. Um, I wish we had the capacity to do things on on Thursday, Monday, Thursday, celebrating the, that Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And Good Friday, uh, celebrating that night that Jesus offered himself in our place on the cross. Uh, we don't have that place, but this is Holy Week. And if you haven't joined us in our, our Lent study, in our process of, of examination to the season of Lent, you can still jump in this Holy Week, this last week. Uh, we've got stuff online that you can open up, some readings that were written to help you process just what happened this week process in your heart, what things are going on and the impact that that makes and how you understand who you are and who God is. And we invite you to join with us in that. And, and during our, our Lenten season, that season of, of really digging, of that season of cultivating, that season of, of looking at what things are in our hearts and are robbing our affection and our joy for Jesus, you know, Lent actually means, we talked about this in the beginning, springtime. It actually means springtide. And so we decided that along with the Linton season that lasted these seven weeks, we would preach a series on one of the most amazing and often neglected books of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, that like no other book I've encountered, so directly challenges the illusions and the things that capture our heart and draw us away from Jesus. So as some of us have been studying those things through Lent, we've been going week in and week out together through the book of Ecclesiastes, just trusting God to expose the illusions that Solomon is, has explored and lived out on our behalf. That we would see where, like Solomon, we have put our hope and put our trust and search for meaning and purpose in life in a place other than Jesus. And that as we would see the, the hope that we once put in those things as nothing but deceptive, it would prepare us to hope in the one thing, in the gospel, that can never, can never deceive and can never fail and can never disappoint. We said in the very beginning, if we're going to hope in the one thing, that we can, that we know will never deceive us and never fail us. We've got to be willing to let go of everything that we know. Everything that we know that does deceive, that does fail, that does leave us unsatisfied. And so we've opened up the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to spend the springtime going through this book, trusting God to unpack for us the illusions that we so easily give ourselves to. And, and we'll do a brief catch-up to get you where we're going this week for those who haven't been with us the last few weeks. And you open up the book of Ecclesiastes, what you get is, is Solomon, the, the wisest man ever to walk on, on, on the planet Earth, the wisest man who God gave a wisdom that is unparalleled decided to explore where real meaning, real where real purpose, where real satisfaction could be found in this earth apart from the understanding and revelation that comes from God. He said, under the sun, left to my own five senses, my own best understanding, I am going to take all the resources that I have got, the wisdom that God has given me, the resources that I have amassed as king, and I'm going to, with my whole heart, give myself over into everything that I can give myself into to see if in that, outside of God, is there any real meaning or purpose to be found. And so he set out on on a quest, on a journey, to give himself over to this life. And to see if there's anything besides God that could give him the purpose for his life, the meaning for his life. He looked at wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and he found that no matter how wise we could get and how much we could know, we could never really get that final edge on life. We could never really get that last edge that overcame the last enemy that we all had to face, which was death, because in the end, no matter how smart we were, we all wound up in the grave. We all wound up in the grave. And at that point, death, the one thing our intelligence and wisdom has never been able and never will be able to conquer, it renders us all fools. And so he gave himself into all the things that he could acquire as king, as a man with unlimited resources. He gave himself over into indulgences and said, maybe in celebrating and, and, and living what we talked about, that, that Jersey Shore college fraternity lifestyle, and the parties and in the drinks and in the food and in the people, maybe in giving myself over to that joy, that pleasure, maybe just abandoning myself to that, in that maybe, maybe there's real purpose. There's real satisfaction to be found there. And in the end, he said, no, there was, there was momentary joy. There was pleasure had in those things, but it wasn't lasting And when the scales got balanced at the end, he said there's no real ultimate purpose or gain or satisfaction to be found in that, but he turned his resources and his attention to what he could amass for himself and build for himself and looked at the houses and the temple and the parks and all the things that Solomon gave himself to and used his wisdom on the earth and his resources to build for himself. And he required a reputation of fame that exceeded anybody in the land. And he gathered to himself servants who had servants who had servants who did for him everything the rest of us wish somebody else would do for us and he said with all of that all the power all the fame all the stuff all the houses all the wives all of the mistresses all the stuff all the experiences i gave myself into there was no real meaning no lasting purpose no life defining purpose and ultimate satisfaction to be found in any of it whatever joy there was was just fleeting It was like a herding, a shepherding of the wind, a striving after the wind, he said. It was like a two-year-old blowing those magic bubbles outside in the front yard and the wind blowing and them thinking that they could go and grab them all. They could chase them all only to grab one and have it pop. As close as they would get, they grab it and it pops. And they keep chasing and chasing and chasing. And the futility that we know that they're exercising and trying to get all of those things into their hands is the feeling that Solomon says we have when we try to find what we're looking for in all of these things apart from God under the sun. And so last week after that first initial exploration, he kind of dipped away from his first journey and he said, you know, outside of what I can understand under the sun, this life, this life under heaven, this life with a God who has created all things, this God who has spoken and what did not exist has come into existence This God who has promised himself to his people to be their God. Under him, there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time and a place for the joy, a time and a place for the tears. A time and a place for the laughter, a time and a place to acquire, a time and a place to get rid of. A time to embrace people, a time to let go of people. That under God, he is weaving everything in this fallen world together. And that in its time, a time in which only he knows to the fullest extent, everything, all of those seasons, will be made beautiful in their time. They'll be made beautiful in their time. Like Dan was talking about this morning as we sing that, that song, better is one day. God, he gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name. This is what Solomon was talking about last week. And like Ray said, if you only know God in the good... If you only know him in the good times and the good seasons, then you miss out on all of the grace and all the joy and all the satisfaction and all the meaning that's to be found in finding him in the tough times. And so Solomon said that under heaven, under God, there's a time and a place. And in all the seasons, there's joy to be found because it comes from the hand of God and he's there. And he is the one taking all of these things and weaving them together to make them beautiful in their time. And then this week, he's going to return back to his original quest, his original framework and context under the sun. He's going to dip back out of looking at life and and, and trying to synthesize it all under a God in heaven who is in control. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to step back out to what we can figure out left to ourselves. And he's going to voice some natural tensions to that reality. He's gonna take the next chapter and a half and he's gonna say if God is weaving all these things together for his glory and that they'll be made beautiful in their time, here's here's what I'm struggling with. Left to myself looking around, there are some things that are going on that I just can't figure out how they're gonna be made beautiful. And here's my struggle. I really wanted to go through some of these things with you and then leave you there. I really just wanted to unpack this tension that he's gonna talk about and leave you there. And then next week as we come into Easter and celebrate the fullness of all of Solomon's quests and the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I wanted to be able to have you come in and find that fulfillment, but I'm not going to do that to you this morning. I thought some of you just might not make it to next Sunday. So we are going to look at Solomon's tensions. We're going to look at his frustrations. We're going to look at his responses to this reality, and then we're going to try to get some lenses whereby we can understand where he is in this story and how he's understanding this, but yet where we are in the story so that we can read this text with the right perspective and we can understand it the way that only we can understand it in a way that he couldn't because we're on a different side of God's story than Solomon was. So we're going to read it and I'm going to let you sit on it. And then I'm going to try to give you some lenses by God's grace and time that we've got that will help you make some sense of it. So if you've got your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 16. And we're gonna read and talk and read and talk. And, you know, there's not much that I can say on some of these verses that isn't said for itself. So I just want you to hear what he's got to say. But let me pray for us, because it's been an interesting morning. Father, we're here. We need your help. Um, Lord, you have gathered us together as your people. You have a purpose and plan for our time here this morning. All of the, the difficulties that go on behind the scenes, all the struggles that we've had to work through this morning to get to this place. You have a purpose for that. And Lord, we ask that in the time that we have together this morning, your spirit work through your word. Your spirit work through the words that I speak to do something with them that only you can do. So we pray for your wisdom. We pray for patience. Lord, remove the distractions, all the things that we busy our hearts and our minds with as we gather together. In the next few minutes, just remove those distractions. Lord, for your glory and by your grace, let your, word, let your word penetrate our hearts. Let it do work in our souls. Let it cultivate our souls to reflect the character of your son. And we ask this, that our lives would reflect your glory, so that in this city and in the places that you send us, your name will be made great through the lives that we live and the words that we speak. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Here's what Solomon is actually going to say. Here's the tension. Here's the struggle. Moreover, he said, I saw that under the sun, back to my five senses, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So God's weaving it all together. He's got a purpose and a plan and a time to make everything beautiful. But left to myself and I look around at this world, here's what I see. The first thing that I see is that there are places that we have established to deal with the reality of sin in a fallen world lived out through men and women like you and I who who live fallen and sinful lives. We've established places of justice where we could come and, and have rights wronged, have circumstances vindicated. In their time and in their place, it was the elders who would sit by the city gates And people could come and bring their disputes to the elders and the elders would hash it over according to God's law and they would dispense justice. They would declare righteousness and wickedness. But here's what Solomon says. In the places that we've established, where the justice is supposed to reign, even there I find wickedness. Even there I find wickedness. And in the places that we go, that we've established to mitigate our own sinfulness towards one another, even there there's wickedness. You want to know why? Because they're only as good as the people who run them. They're only as good as the people who run them. I, I sometimes find myself and have to even laugh at myself about how frustrated I get at, at some of the rulings that come out of the courts in our, in our country at some of the circumstances and situations. Why in the world am I expecting these things to do anything other than what they do? Our places of justice are run by sinful people. And Solomon says, I look around and how in the places of justice that that we put in place to mitigate this, how in the world is God going to take that and make it beautiful? Because even there, there's wickedness. Turn on television. Justice costs as much as the best litigator in the courtroom. That's really it. That's really it, bloody glove or not. It costs as much as the best litigator in the room. And Solomon's frustrated at this. He's frustrated why won't God deal with it now? God's going to make everything beautiful in his time, but look at this. What about those who come? What about those who come for justice, who are, who are sinned against? in the place where they're supposed to find it, they only, they only find wickedness. Verse 17, he said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time and a matter for every work. And so we kind of, goes back to what he talked about just before that okay here's what i'm going to have to realize god is ultimately going to to sort this thing out because left to ourselves we're never going to be able to do the thing that we think we should be doing justice is never really going to be found left to the hands of men and women but there's a time and a place that god is going to institute justice but here's his frustration think about his story think about where he is what does he not know what's going to happen when's god going to do it he's frustrated he's frustrated He's frustrated. God is going to have to be the one to bring justice. But the natural question then, because of what he's already said, is when? When? And you know, we have this unbelievably interesting love-hate relationship with justice. With each other, and especially when it comes to God. We, We love justice when we're pursuing it for ourselves. We love the idea of justice when we're the ones who have been hurt. When we're the ones who have been sinned against, when we're the ones whose rights or life has been violated, we're all about justice. But when we're the ones when we're the ones who bring pain into the life of another person, when we're the ones who sin against someone else, when we're the ones who breach that contract of social relationship that we've established and tears come because of our words and our actions, what is it that we want? Mercy. this unbelievably strange relationship with justice. And Solomon says, here's the thing that I'm going to have to figure out. And I'm just going to have to leave it to. God's going to have to deal with it. God's going to have to deal with it. But his frustration underlying is, now, now when is he going to do it? There's a time and a place for it. He's going to make it all right in the right time. But now I'm really frustrated because when is that? Because I want it right now. I want justice now. And he's frustrated. And so he says, God's going to have to do it. But verse 18, I said in my heart, I came to this conclusion that God's going to have to do it. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of men, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Here's what he's saying God is going to have to be the one that meets out the justice that we all want, but we don't know when it's going to happen. And now I'm doubly frustrated because God, in his time and in its season, is allowing us to see that when it's all said and done, again, we're just like the beasts. We might have opposable thumbs. We might be able to build, create in the image of God to reason to feel. But when it's all said and done, when the last breath is taken, you and your dog are going to be lying right next to each other in the grave. The same fate awaits us both. And like he said in the beginning, we don't know when that is. You don't know when that is. You don't know the day that you're going to take your last breath. So now he's doubly and triply frustrated. God is going to work it out. But I don't know when. And I don't know when I'm going to die. So I don't know if I'm actually going to see the justice come. The justice that I want. The justice that's due in this circumstance. And I'm frustrated. Verse 20, he says, all of us go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, we all return. So right now, as we sit in dominion over creation, as you rule in authority over your dog, the day will come. The day will come. You're not ontologically like your dog. You're not, in essence, like your dog. But when both of you take your last breath, and you both go to the same place, the ground, from where you both came, you don't know what's going to happen. And this, this is what his frustration is beginning to build to. Left to our five senses. That's it. That's all you can know. That's all you can know. You've got to get this. Left to your five senses the best that you can come to terms with in this life right here, apart from the inspiration and understanding and revelation that comes from God, the best that you can get is that in this life, justice will be imperfect. This life, justice will be imperfect. And when it's all said and done and that last breath is taken, you and the beasts are exactly the same in the grave. And we trust We trust that God, who's working all things together for his glory and our good, who has a time to make everything beautiful, will have to work that justice out. But you don't know when it's going to happen. And here's the struggle left to your five senses. You don't know what happens when you die. You have no clue. You have no way of knowing what happens to you when you die. Left to your five senses. Listen to what he says. Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who knows? Who's ever been there and come back to tell you? Who knows what happens when you die? When you and your dog are laid in the ground right next to each other? Verse 22, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the boiling point for him in this first part. God is going to work it all out, but... Look at the injustice in the world. How is that going to be made beautiful? God will have to work it out, but how do I know he actually will? I won't get to see it probably. And what can I actually know about what happens when I die to know that it will actually come to pass? Nobody can know what happens to them when they die. Now I'm just really frustrated because I can't find the answer. I don't have all the information that I need to make the decision that I need to make. I see in our world and... Throughout history, we've come up with all kinds of ways to answer this frustration. We've come up with all kinds of philosophies and ideas of what happens when you and Sparky both go into the ground and the hope that you have for justice to come on the other side. You know, for some, it's not the largest percentage of the world. But for a good percentage of the world, they have this wonderful idea that your life is going to be judged at the end based on the amount of good, however they define good, works that you do and intentions that you have. And when you die, you're going to come back as something else. And you're going to continue to live a life of good works the way that it's defined by that particular group in hopes that when you die, you'll come back as something else, progressing along a chain, ultimately hoping to find yourself however many lives and millennia down the road in the place of enlightenment and fulfillment. But here's the problem. When you die and you come back as something else, how do you know what you did wrong the first time? How do you know what you did wrong the first time? How can you not do the same thing over again if you don't know what you did wrong in the first time because you died and you came back as something completely different? Ridiculous. But that's a, that's a small group. But an even smaller group, it's becoming more popular, has come up with this idea that the last breath goes, you and Sparky go into the dirt, and that's it. It's called annihilation. Nothing. That's just it. You got your best shot right now. Because when the last breath comes and the eyes go down and the room gets dark, there's nothing on the other end. Fewer actually believe that. Really press anybody who talks about that. Press them to see if they really, really buy into that. The evangelical heresy is very similar to the first one, minus the second lives, but it's that we do all the best things that we can do defined by the group that we hang out with in hopes that when we die and that last breath comes, there's this great lady of justice we call God with the scales up there that's going to measure and balance what we've done right and what we've done wrong, and we just hope that we tip the scales in the right way. So we live our lives in pursuit of trying to earn our future. Knowing we think that there is one, not really sure what it's based on and what's actually going to happen, but there's something beyond this. And the one that you never hear. The one that you never hear. But if you actually read Ecclesiastes, you would have to make an argument for in Solomon's experience of life left to himself. Everybody's just going to go to hell. You never hear anybody talking about that one. That's not the afterlife that anybody writes books about. I've yet to run into anybody that just believes when you die, it's eternal damnation for everybody. But if you listen to Solomon, left to yourself, left to your own five senses, the experiences that we have in this fallen world, it's a good case. It's a good case to be made for that one. And so he's frustrated. He's frustrated. And he said, if all that you've got is your five senses under the sun, all that you can know, all that you can feel, all that you can touch and taste and smell and reason, your life, when the last breath is gone, is up to your best guess. Your eternity is your own best guess. What happens? You're left to just come up with whatever you can come up with in yourself. And who knows at that point if justice will ever be brought. Who knows? But he's not done. Just when you thought, okay, go ahead and turn. He's not done. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power. And there was no one, no one to comfort them. So he looks around in the places where there's supposed to be justice. He sees wickedness. He sees people failing to get the justice in their lives in the places that were set up for them to go and to find it, to find vindication, to find righteousness and justice. And he looks around and he says, in the places where you're supposed to be loved and comforted and cared for and encouraged and enabled, all there is is oppression. All there is is oppression. In the places where we've set up where people have authority, where people have power to actually cultivate the spirit of God and the image of God in your life to encourage you to go, to protect you, to keep you safe, to enable what God has put it in you. Instead of seeing that power and that authority used for those ends, there's oppression. Now, you don't have to go far or we don't have to pull up stats. We don't have to pull out newspapers for you to understand oppression by the powerful over those that are weak in the rest of the world. When we can talk about the eight-year-old kids that make your Nikes for two, 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 pennies, two pennies a day, we can talk about all the places around the world where there's oppression, but he's getting at something even larger than political and governmental and societal and oppression. There are places in our lives that have been established for us to find security, for us to find comfort, for us to find, find safety. Oppression comes from people who have a power and authority in our lives to cultivate something in us, but use it for themselves it can be churches, it can be pastors, it can be schools, it can be teachers. Most dramatically, most powerfully, what most occurs in, in our land probably the most is an oppression that comes from the home. when fathers and mothers who are given a power and authority to raise their kids, ultimately in the fear and admonition of the Lord to cultivate in their soul the gifts and the image of God placed in them, they use that power they use that authority instead of freeing them and enabling them and encouraging them to oppress them. Ultimately, dads, unbelievably horrible about this. All across this country, there are men who have no longer, no longer see the role that they have in the life of their kids and they use their power over their wives, they use their power over their kids to not bring out of them what God put in but to oppress them to get from them what they want. And if that's not bad enough, 40% of the kids in this country tonight will go without a dad. And as we'll see, maybe, maybe they're better off. We'll see what he's talking about in a minute. Oppression. He looks around in the places that were given to us in our lives to be comforted and encouraged. And he says there's oppression and there is no comforter. There is no one to comfort them. And so the most haunting verses... Haunting verses I think I've read in Scripture in a long, long time. I have not been able to get away from these all week. Two of the most haunting verses in the Bible. And I thought, with all of this being said, with all of it being said, I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Moreover, verse 3, but better than both, better than the dead and better than the living, is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here's what he said, left to your five senses, this is it. Left to your five senses, no justice to be found. In the place of comfort, there's nothing but oppression. You're going to die and you're left to your best guess to figure out what happens when it's all said and done. If there's comfort to be found on the other side, if there's justice to be found, left to yourself, you just don't know. The natural conclusion is this. Better are those who have died because at least they don't deal with it anymore. You've got to be honest here. You've got to be honest. Remember his context. Under the sun, left to himself. No other information at all to be known. The dead are better off because at least they're done. But better yet, better than them, better than the dead are the ones who haven't been born because they haven't tasted. They haven't even tasted or seen the pervasiveness of the sin that we tend to commit against one another they haven't tasted the injustice they haven't tasted the impression they haven't experienced just how horrible just how horrible we can be to one another so I'm going to get a sip of coffee and you can just think about that are you thinking Selah Happy Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. One of the most depressing, frustratingly honest texts in the Bible. One of the most frustrating and depressingly honest texts in the Bible, which is why I love the Bible so much. Some of you have come to the Bible with this idea that it's just this glowing book of principles and proverbs and rules and promises, and the Bible is this unbelievably beautifully accurate picture, accurate picture of who God is and who we are, what we've done and what he has done, and life here on the earth and life to come, it doesn't miss a beat at all, at all. And if we're going to actually understand, now I've got to give you some lenses because if I leave you there like I wanted to, I'm not sure that many of you would make it back on Sunday. I I mean, I was really, I mean, I think it was up to last night. I was thinking about just leaving you there. But cooler heads prevailed in prayer and I'm going to try to give you some lenses so that you can actually see this passage, so that you can see what Solomon's saying in its right place, in its right context, and then you can see where we are, in the right place, in the right context. It's kind of like going to a 3D movie. You ever been to a 3D movie? And you get those glasses, and there are actually two different lenses in the glass, but they actually together make that special film that they use make sense. If you don't have the glasses and you watch the movie, all you get is a headache and frustration, and you miss out on all the joy and all the excitement and all the stuff that's going on because you don't have the lenses to actually see it, to take it all in, to make sense of it, to actually experience it. And so I want to give you lenses I want want you to see this text in its right place and see yourself in the right place that you can understand what he's saying and you can see the tensions as they make sense and begin to get a taste of what's coming, of what's coming next week, what we celebrate, the value and the glory of the resurrected Jesus. You've got to understand that to make sense of what Solomon's saying. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a big picture of your Bible and I want you to understand where Solomon fits and where Ecclesiastes fits in this and where you fit in this so that we can read this thing the right way and make sense, okay? The very beginning of your Bible, we're gonna, some, some people much smarter, than, much smarter than I were able to take the Bible and to help people understand it, they took a common play, uh, the structure, the five-act narrative structure of a play, and they said, the story of the Bible Far from being a book that has a bunch of stories, the Bible itself is the greatest story ever told, ever told. The story of God's redemption, the story of God's redeeming love towards his created order. And they took this structure, this five-act structure of a play, and they said, you can understand the story of the Bible that way. See, in in the beginning of the Bible, in the very beginning, like a play, you get introduced to the main characters. You get to understand who God is and who we are, how we came into being. In the very beginning of the Bible, you see this good and glorious and great God create everything just by speaking it into existence. You get a sense of his glory, a sense of his power, a sense of his grandeur and his mercy as he creates humanity, men and women, in his image, in his likeness, and he speaks to them, and he interacts with them. He has a relationship with them, close and personal, not separated from them, and you get a sense of what the world was like and how it was created to be, and you're introduced to the the principal surroundings and characters of the story then in act two, like any good play or any good story, conflict is introduced. You've got the stable surroundings, but conflict's got to come in the story. And in the second act of the story it's just in the third chapter of Genesis. It's you're still stuck in the first like four pages of your Bible. You see the conflict introduced. You see the deceiver finding his way to humanity. You see the deceiver tempting and deceiving Adam and Eve into believing a lie about who God was. And you see them exchanging the truth of God for a lie. You see them no longer worshiping God in obedience to God, trusting Him for who He is and what He's done, but choosing to take that upon themselves and feel like they could find out knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil and rule their world over the, for themselves, instead of surrender to the goodness of God. And you see sin introduced, and the conflict gets brought into the story in Act Two. In Act Three, and this is going to be the better part of your Old Testament, Genesis four all the way through till we hit to the New Testament. Act three of a good story is just the ensuing conflict, the rise of the drama, the ins and the out of the conflict of the of the story beginning to take shape. And so throughout Genesis, what you see from Genesis to the Old Testament is you see the conflict of God's grace, <clears throat> of God's grace and God's goodness, and God's justice. And yet his promise towards a sinful and rebellious people to make all things right and yet their refusal to not submit their hearts to God and trust him for who he is. And you see those two things weaving in and out and the escalating drama and circumstances and situations of our inability to trust God for who he is and our desire to rule over ourselves and God's justice being being displayed and, and held off ultimately and his mercy and his grace ruling and his never giving up, never stopping, never surrendering love that I love, my my son's Bible says, being played out against man's sinfulness all throughout the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament, you see different circumstances played out through God's people and you get the different stories and the ways that God's love carried his people along even though they continued to fight against him. And then in any good story, in Act 4, the conflict builds to a point that ultimately a climax comes to the conflict. And in Act 4, we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the first part of it that we call the Gospels. The good news. It's not a religious word, if you remember this. We talk about it all the time. Gospel is a political word. Kings who would conquer nations would send out messengers with an edict or a decree that would would proclaim that a new king was ruling in a land and that this king had new rules and a new life, and here's what could be expected for you. And that message was called the gospel. It was called good news of a new king. And you turn to your New Testament, we have four books called the gospels when this story would climax into this point where the good news of a new king would come that God's promise, God's promise had finally come. And you see God not speaking a new word to his people but becoming the word. Finding the seasons and the circumstances of life and not separating himself from them but entering into them in the person of Jesus Christ. And in his life, he, he lived the life that we were created in the very beginning to live in honor and worship of God. But we chose to sin instead and Paul will say the wages of sin are death and Jesus took the price for our rebellious life in our place on the cross and he became sin in our place and the justice of God and the love of God that had woven this unbelievable story throughout the Old Testament that you had seen carry across the life and the generations of the people of Israel finally came to this ultimate climax on the cross where his love and his justice collided in the death of Jesus in our place and the justice of God the justice of God was initially delivered for our sinfulness. In the fifth act of a good story, what happens in the climax gets played out for the characters. Now the resolution of the climax gets applied. The implications of what happened makes application to the lives of the people And you see that in the rest of the New Testament from Acts to the letters of of Paul and Peter to the churches. God not only raises Jesus from the dead, vindicating him in our place for our sin, he then sends his very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to, to fulfill a promise and to empower his people to be the people he has created them to be. And you see the church established in Acts and the church sent out on mission by God to go and proclaim this gospel and good news that all tribes and tongues and nations on the earth would hear this good news and turn in hope and joy and promise and trust to Jesus. That their lives would be transformed by what he's done for us. And you see that in the New Testament applied to people throughout the world at the time. Letter after letter to church after church. That's where we live. See, Solomon is back here in Act 3. When the conflict is introduced and it's intermingled. And there's a hope of something coming but you can't really see it. Sin and grace and justice and rebellion. They're weaving together in the lives of the people. And God has promised to make all things right, but it hasn't happened. And that's where Solomon is. He can't see what God's going to do. He doesn't get it. And then in this book, he limits himself, not even to what God had promised, but all that he can experience on the life in this earth, under the sun to his five senses. But that's not where we are. He said, left to myself, it's all my own best guess. And I don't have enough information to know what's going to happen. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't see the whole story. I don't know when I die, is there gonna be justice and comfort? We're on the other side of the story in act five. We're on the backside of the resurrection and the cross and we know how God brought his justice to bear. We, in the midst of injustice, don't have to fight for justice. We can actually go to the judge. We, in the midst of oppression, where there is no comfort to be found in this earth, we can actually go to the comforter. We can turn to the one who fulfills those things in a way that Solomon could never see. We're in a different part of the story. So we don't read Ecclesiastes the way that he did. We don't read Ecclesiastes the way the early church did. We are on the other side of the story as God's justice and his mercy and his love are getting applied to his people. That's not the end of the story. And this plays a big part. A good play stops right there. Five acts worked out. There's a sixth act though. Because we actually know what's to come when it's all said and done. It's not just that this gospel, this good news of a new king and a new kingdom is being proclaimed to people throughout the earth, drawing people to God and to one another that we call the church, the people of God. We know that in the end, the justice that God demonstrated on the cross, the comfort that he brought to his people through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is ultimately going to be fulfilled in a way that we can never imagine in the end. That he is going to come back. And though we can relate with Solomon because we live in a sinful, fallen world, but we have the hope of the resurrection on our side, we understand what he was going through, but we have something else we're looking forward to. We know how the story ends. We know the good news of this king and a new kingdom. And in that kingdom, there will be no injustice. There will be no oppression. Every tear will be wiped away. Every hurt will be healed. We know that God is not going to whisk us away into the hinterlands of whatever of novels and imagination. But in his glory, he will return. He will make right all that sin had so torn apart, and that includes creation. And the world will be made anew. And the world will be made right. And in that moment, here's what I want you to see in relation to his frustration. In that moment, the justice that God demonstrated on the cross towards sin and the mercy and love of God that was demonstrated towards us in that act, there will be a final justice. Justice a fulfillment of that justice in that day. And in that day, you and I can look forward in a way that Solomon never could to a justice that will come that will set all the wrongs, all of the wrongs right, that will comfort all of the oppressed. If you've got your Bibles, I wanna do this, we'll do it real fast. John chapter five. I want you to see this because I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Really important that you don't think I'm making this up. We'll go quick. John chapter 5. Acts 6, total restoration of all things, of all things. And listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. We'll start, I'll start back in verse 18, but 19 is where we really want to go. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, so Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath, which was against the, the Jewish religious law that had been established not only in the Old Testament, but they had been embellished by all the leaders from that point forward. And they were mad at Jesus because he was healing people and doing work on the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said, I'm God. God's my dad and I'm God. I'm equal with God. And John 5 says, that's why they were seeking to kill him all the more. So this is what he said, and listen to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, so he say, I'm telling you the truth. Listen, here's the truth. Listen to me. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So here's what Jesus just said. He said, I'm telling you the truth. Listen to me. Me and God, were one. I'm God. And here's what the father's done. He's given me the authority to judge and I'm going to do it. I will be the judge. The justice that you're looking for, the justice that your heart is searching for, the justice that's missing in the places of righteousness, all said and done. I'm gonna be the one that's gonna judge it all. Keep reading, listen to him. Verse 22, the father judges no one but has given the judgment to the son. Why? That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm telling you the truth. Now listen to me. I'm God and I'm going to judge. Now listen to me. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I'm telling you, here comes the justice. I am the one that's going to judge. The justice you're looking for is coming. I'm telling you the truth. If you believe, if you believe in the one who sent me, if you believe in the one who sent me, you will not face judgment. You won't face judgment. Listen to what he says, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen, he said, I'm telling you the truth. Something emphatic Jesus is getting after here. I'm telling you the truth. I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted it to the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming. Now listen to this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. He's going to have a roll call at some point. They're going to hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's what Solomon is saying. Here's what we can see on the backside of the cross and the resurrection and what he couldn't see. He had this frustration. What's actually going to happen? I don't know. I'm left to myself. And if justice is going to come, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't have enough information. So God, and the midst of that lack of information, doesn't just give it to us, he actually comes and he says, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be the judge. The justice, I'm the one that brings it. The judgment you're looking for, I'm the one that's gonna deliver it. And here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna come a day, the last breath is taken, and you're in the ground with your dog, that he is gonna come, and he is gonna speak. And I've heard this said before, and I think I actually agree with it, but I don't know how he'll actually do it. I think you're going to hear your name. I think you're going to hear your name. I think that's why when Lazarus was dead and he came to the tomb of Lazarus, he actually said Lazarus' name. Because if he just called out those who are dead, the ground would have just jumped. He said, Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. There's going to come a day when you're in the ground, and he's going to come, and you're going to hear your name, and you are going to rise. And here's the thing. For those who have given their life to their own best guess, to those who have chosen some type of idea or philosophy that doesn't have an understanding of what's to come, that doesn't have an outside perspective on what's going to happen, for those who have who've given it to their own best guess, you're going to rise and you will see. And at that point, you will believe in the words of Jesus. You will believe about what he had said. You will believe what he had said and you will see what he had promised and you will stand before him, and you will face judgment. He is the one who will mete out justice. He is the one who will deliver judgment. But for those who, in this life, repent of their own self-righteousness, repent of their own efforts, at filling that purpose and satisfaction and meaning with themselves, for those who repent and believe in Jesus, That moment that you hear your name and that moment that you rise and stand before him for judgment is gonna be very different because the judgment that will be delivered to you was delivered 2,000 years ago to Jesus. This is the beauty of where we're going with Easter. The judgment will come. He is going to be the judge. For those who are living for their own best guess, you will stand before him and in that time and at that moment, you will believe everything that he has had to say. You will believe in the words of him who sent him. But for those who in this life, for those who in this life, by God's grace, can repent of their own self-righteousness and believe in Jesus, when you rise and stand before him, your judgment has already been laid on him. That moment is gonna be very different. For you, death has become a gift. For you, death has become a gift. You can say with the apostle Paul, death, where is your victory? Where's your sting? You rise to the face of Jesus And you hear righteous. You hear righteous. Because the judgment has already been laid out on the cross. There are two judgments to come. And in the end, the story that we get to see that Solomon couldn't see is that it's going to happen. God initiated it on the cross in his son, and he's going to finish it in the end when he comes. And we get to live this life between that with the knowledge of what's to come and the hope of what's to come. Solomon didn't get that. We can empathize with him because we still live in a world that struggles with sin, with injustice and oppression. But we do not live as those who have no hope. We do not live as those who have no comfort. We do not live as those who have no promise of what's to come. We live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. And we know that justice, justice is going to come. On the cross, Jesus, Jesus became the just. The judge and the justifier of the unrighteousness. God turned his back on his own son so that he would not have to, in that day, turn his back on you. You've got to understand this as you come into Easter. On that day, you will receive justice when you stand before God. And he meted his justice out on his son so that those who believe in him can stand before him and receive the forgiveness that comes from what he's done. And he turned his back on his own son on the cross so he doesn't have to turn it on you. This is the beauty of where we live in light of this story. On the cross, Jesus exhausted the justice and the wrath of God and cried out, it's finished. You don't need to live a particular kind of life to earn a particular kind of rewards so that in the end, you see it balanced out on a scale and you get a different level of degree of righteousness when you go into heaven or you don't have to live a certain life, a little moral life so that when you come back as another person, you can do something a little bit better so you can come back another, again as something else to do a little bit better. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need is Jesus. You've got Jesus. That's the point of the whole story. You've got Jesus. And through God's grace, by faith in Christ, God sees you in him, sees you in his son. Because the story didn't end on the cross. After he died, they wrapped him up. They placed him in a tomb where he laid for three days. And on the third day, by the power of God and the spirit of God, Easter happened. God vindicated the sacrifice of his son in our place and he raised him from the dead. And we have the only person who has ever passed from death to life who can promise us what it's like when it's all said and done. That's Easter. That's what's coming. The story came and will come to a resolution. God has brought justice. Listen, God has brought justice by taking justice by taking it upon himself. And in that, he has called us to himself. And by his grace, he heals us. He heals us. He brings comfort. By his grace, he brings justice where there has been no justice. And he has showed us our future and our eternity with him. This week, this week, Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, culminating in Easter. It's the story of the resolution of Solomon's frustrations. It's the story of the resolution of the frustrations that we live in and experience in life on this fallen earth. We do not live as people with no hope. Paul said if all we have is the hope of Jesus in this life and nothing's left to come, then we are the most to be pitied. But we don't live as people who have no hope. We have a resurrected Jesus, a resurrected king, and good news of a new kingdom. And so we can empathize with Solomon. We can experience and understand the seasons and the times of life, the injustice that we face in the places of justice, the oppression that we face in places where there's to be comfort. And we can say, This is not the end of it all. We know where justice is found. We know where comfort is to be found. And we can live, some of my favorite authors said, with peace, even though we don't know how it will turn out at the end of the day. We can have peace because we know the end of the story. And we can live as God's ambassadors. We can live as his ambassadors on this earth in a way that he has called us to live, loving, loving justice, the justice that comes from God, doing mercy, And living with humility before God, knowing that he is the one that in the right time will make everything beautiful. Everything beautiful. This is what culminates in Easter. This is the hope that we have going into the life that we live day in and day out here. We know the end of the story. We don't have to read it like Solomon. We don't have to live it like Solomon. We live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. And so here's... Here's what I'll, how I want you to, to deal with this this morning. And I'll call you to do a few things this morning, and here it is. First, <clears throat> Very simple. I want you to trust Jesus more than your best guesses. Simple enough? I want you to trust Jesus more than your best guesses. There is going to be a day when you will hear your voice and you will stand before him, and there will be a new kingdom with no injustice and no oppression, no death and no tears, and I want you to trust him more than your best guess. And second, for those who in this life have not submitted themselves to Jesus, do not find joy in who Jesus is and and what he has done. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to own the fact that you're a sinner. Starts right here. I want you to own the fact that in this world, you are one who causes injustice and oppression in the lives of other people. You, like me, are a sinner. And I want you to thank Jesus for dying in your place on the cross to pay the price for that injustice and oppression you caused in the lives of other people. I want you to acknowledge who you are, and I want you to thank him for what he has done, even if you are a Christian if your life is marked by repentance and and hope and faith and trust in Jesus for who he is and what he has done, I want you to see that you're no different. I want you to repent for living in this life at times as a sinner who causes pain and injustice and oppression in the lives of other people. And I want you to trust him for what he has done for you today. The pain that you cause today. I want you to trust him for what he has done then to forgive you of what you have done and what you conti- will continue to do until day he comes. I want you to repent. I want you to trust. And then I want you, if that's you, to celebrate the forgiveness, the justice, the comfort, the resolution that has come by his death on the cross as we as a people take communion. I want you to celebrate what he has done as we take communion remembering the price that he paid so that justice could come, that comfort could come. So now it's it's custom. We're gonna take some time to reflect and then we're going to respond. And listen to me. I want you to enjoy responding to Jesus today. I want you to enjoy responding to Jesus today. Seasons can be hard. Times can hurt. Tears can come. Listen, I want you to enjoy responding to who Jesus is and what he has done today because as painful as it is, Jesus is the only one, listen, he is the only one who is sufficient to forgive what you have already done. The pain that you have brought into this life. He is the only one sufficient to forgive you for that. He's the only one sufficient to heal, to heal the hurts that you have in your life for the oppression and the wickedness and injustice that's been brought into your world. And He is the only one, only one who's sufficient enough to call you out of the grave one day, to call your name for you to stand and for you to rise and for you to see Him face to face. And to grant you newness of life and restoration of life and eternity with him. He's the only one. So I want you to enjoy responding to him today. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna stop talking. And I'm gonna let you say la. Father, thank you for Palm Sunday. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the plans of the Father to go into that city to offer yourself in our place to lay your life down as it had been told in the scriptures for our sin to be made sin for us on that cross and to suffer the justice of God in my place thank you for going into the town to do that thank you for being obedient to the point of death on a cross Father thank you Thank you for finding Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf, on my behalf, sufficient for raising him from the dead, for conquering death, for conquering death, and for promising us new life. Thank you. Holy Spirit, do whatever's necessary in our hearts. Do whatever's necessary in our hearts. You know our hearts. You know our souls. You know us in and out. Do whatever's necessary to make that message beautiful, to make it sing to make our souls sing when we hear it. Do whatever is necessary for us to turn from ourselves into you. We ask this for your glory, by your grace. Amen.